Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Welcome to our second episode of this special series in partnership with the Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance and the Future Drought Fund. The WA Southern Rangelands encompasses all of the land area of the south of the Pilbara, excluding the agricultural zone of the Southwest Land Division. The Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance was formed to provide leadership and support for sustainable pastoral production and diversification in the Southern Rangelands region. On our second episode, we travelled to Eda Station, Yarragabi Station, both outside of Mount Magna, and Pindabana Station on the outside of Sandstone. We chatted to three different pastoralists who are passionate about revegetation of their stations. From visiting the region, it was evident that some work needed to be done from years of having livestock in the natural landscape. It was, however, amazing to see some of the work that each of these pastoralists have done. Our first chat was with Toby from Eater Station, where we were able to understand some of his work utilising natural bush and shrubbery to maintain and manipulate water runoff to be able to provide more opportunities for natural vegetation to grow. Toby was really great. He was a character. He doesn't get a lot of visitors and he was a little bit shocked, but his beautiful sister was there and they fed us lunch. That was so lovely. Yeah. I don't think Toby knew what he was in for when us three ladies rolled in with a couple of microphones and a camera in his face. But Eda Station was incredibly beautiful. I remember the homestead and just how it stood out from the landscape, this little oasis in the middle of the rangelands. But what struck me about our visit to Toby Station was just how he's utilising things that are accessible to him and thinking outside the box about what he already has available and not necessarily spending tens of thousands of dollars bringing in new infrastructure to solve those problems. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. So I'm sure you guys will all enjoy this part of the episode. Fantastic. Toby, Thank you so much for having us out at your beautiful property. First place we always start is for you to tell us a bit about yourself and about your stunning place. My name's Toby Nichols. I bought with my brother and two other partners. Uh, we bought Edar Station in 2015. The other two have, have withdrawn from the partnership, as was predicted by almost everybody uh, <laughs> when, we, when we formed the partnership. So it's been my brother and myself for the last five years. When, when we bought the place, uh, the, our neighbours to the east and west were running sheep and now both of those properties are destocked because of, uh, largely because of the dog situation. We did run small mobs of sheep. Eventually we, we had to face reality that we couldn't compete with the dogs. The sheep did well that we had here. They did, they did well. But we didn't have them for long. We kept them until um, until we, we could see we were running out of feed and then, uh, then on-sold them. We, we're hoping to do that again uh, once we've got the dog situation under control. We're fencing to try and achieve that. We're part of a, a group of four properties which are adjoin, which are uh, the four of us are building a fence which will include uh, about a quarter of a million hectares on the adjoining properties. Um, so we're hoping to have a sort of small four-property cell 
to exclude dogs from, from the properties. Fascinating. You've been showing us around and some of the work you've been doing, and we'll definitely talk about that in a moment, but I'm wondering if you could paint a picture for us when you arrive in 2015, fresh to the property, what was it like? What did it look like? What work have you sort of worked, done since? The property had been destocked for eight years when we bought it, but because the boundary fencing was not in great condition, in fact, we were running, the property was running its neighbour's sheep uh, as well as um, large numbers of kangaroos. Disappointingly, it, it didn't look very different from the stocked properties around around it. You know, we were, we were hoping that that uh, it would be in better condition because it had been destocked. But I think because of the kangaroos, uh, principally because of the kangaroos, the total grazing pressure that it had been subject to was was similar to the, our neighbours. The homestead complex was well maintained. So we, we've done very little except to uh, build a couple of sheds and there was no air conditioning when we... Uh, when we <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, un, until this summer, we really didn't have effective air conditioning. And uh, we've now got two evaporative units here, which have made a big difference or made a big difference over the hot weather. In terms of other improvements, we, um, we've bought some machinery and that's enabled us to do some earthworks, trying to reverse some of the the water erosion that, that's occurred on the property, uh, principally in association with, with uh, tracks and, and fences. That's an ongoing project for us, as well as the as-yet-to-be-completed cell fence. We have just gone out and had a look at what you're doing to diversify the rangeland conditions, as it's something you are quite passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and your innovations that you've just shown us? Yes, we're trying various things. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of work being done in that area all over the globe and in Australia. We've had a workshop here run by a fellow called Hugh Pringle, who I think is originally a botanist, but uh, he's a, a rangeland ecologist. And he ran a, a workshop which he called a rehydration workshop. And the objective of the workshop was to, for us, for local people to learn about uh, techniques for slowing down the flow of water across the, the landscape and try to get the water to to be held in the landscape rather than running off into um, drainage channels and rivers and uh, salt lakes. So we, we've implemented some of those techniques, creating earthen banks to prevent the uh, upstream progression of, of gullies, trying to divert water away from areas where it's running very quickly, try to get it to spread out across the, the landscape. The infiltration of water into the landscape requires that... Well, it's facilitated by the ground cover and, and by plant life and plant growth. Uh, so we're hoping that by reducing grazing pressure and increasing uh, ground cover and both perennial and annual grasses that we can improve water rehydration. Mm. And we've certainly just been out and had a look at, you know, you guys have been destocked for three years, some of like just how much regeneration has been happening yeah, of the yeah. land. Maybe you could get into specifics, like what sort of grasses are you starting to see come back and what are some of the changes that these tools you've been using are making a difference on? Yeah, uh, it's, it's very patchy. In some areas, there's no evidence of uh, improvement or regeneration. What we'd like to see is, is a lot more perennial grasses surviving from year to year. We believe that probably pre-pastoralism, we, we believe that the perennial grasses were widespread in this, in this area and they help, obviously help to 
hold the, the soil together and, and to, to help uh, water infiltration. So we've seen a few species species coming back. Probably the, the common one is um, broadleaf wandery, but we're also seeing uh, soft wandery, some woolly butt. There's buck wandery, which isn't a, a feed source, but it holds the, the country together as well. Windmill grass we're seeing in, in isolated patches, but I have to concede that the vast majority of the, the property, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of these grasses. They're just occurring in small places which haven't been subject to such high grazing pressure, which are retaining water better than, than the rest of the property. Toby, can you talk to us about sustainability and sort of why you're trialling and erroring all of these situations and different ideas for revegetation and what it will really mean for the future of the station? Yeah, well, I, I think for any sort of agricultural enterprise if it's not sustainable then then you're just you're just mining the resources in the ground most people would agree that the southern rangelands have been uh, significantly affected by total grazing pressure not necessarily from stock uh, well although stock is a component of that but particularly by kangaroos because the provision of permanent water in a in a landscape that previously had very little permanent water, has allowed far more kangaroos to survive than, than would previously have done. So that they've been a major driver of landscape decline uh, over the last 130 or 40 years. For the revegetation, what are you hoping to see? Where, where would you like to get your property to? Well, we've got a short-term gain of increasing the productivity of, of the property through regeneration. We're aiming to double the productivity, the carrying capacity of, of the property without causing a further degradation. In fact, whilst, whilst the property improves, while the landscape improves, we aim to in, increase the productivity. We've been having a bit of chat about, of course, all of this sort of happening in conjunction with the introduction of carbon projects and, and carbon money, I suppose. I don't think it's remiss of me to say that, you know, the carbon money has allowed you guys to really concentrate on you know, keeping the property destocked and really working on the mm. revegetation. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Prior to, uh, before the last three years, we were basically uh, spending our capital to survive uh, and to do small improvements that we felt we had to do. But since the, uh, the income from carbon has started to, to come in, we've, we've been able to um, contemplate much more significant expenditure uh, on the place. So, yes, it's been a godsend for us. Yeah, fascinating. And Toby, you were a doctor in a previous not-too-distant life. Oh, I was, yes. I'm now retired. <laughs> <laughs> what skills do you think, you know, or what mentality has, you know, being a doctor brought to how you think about running a station? <laughs> <laughs> oh, could I take that uh, question on notice? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, I guess it definitely helps when there's an incident on farm. I imagine you come pretty near to a scuffle or two with your brother here and there living yeah. together now. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I can't think of a, 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 a particular skill that I've brought to the property. I feel like I've learnt a lot of skills since we bought the place. I um, think you're undervaluing yourself. I think uh, you're probably incredibly analytical in terms of, I think, traditionally a lot of people who, particularly of your generation, they grow up on these farms and they don't really leave their farms ever. They, they don't go away and get education. I think probably that sort of outside of ag experience has given you a different perspective in how you run your station. Oh uh, Yeah, sure, sure. I think... Um, 
it's always helpful to look at things from a different perspective. Yeah, that's amazing. And we're sitting here amongst some of the beautiful historical sort of parts of the property and the homestead here. And we're very, very grateful for, for you having us out today. I guess the place we kind of like to finish on is around, you know, big picture, maybe plans for yourself and, and beyond everything we've discussed, like what's what's your vision maybe for, for the property, but also for yourself in the property as well? Yeah, um, my vision, and I think my brother's vision uh, as well, is is to improve the condition of the the property, particularly the flora, the soil. We, we certainly would like to run it as a profitable grazing enterprise again, um, as it has been done in the past. My brother has two sons, neither of whom I think would be interested in taking the property on. There's no generation coming on to take it over. We've hosted some researchers here and that, that's ongoing. We've yeah. got people coming here from Murdoch from time to time yeah. uh, and from the Ag Department. So we, we, we see that as part of the future. In, in terms of pers- personally, my personal future, I'm hoping that uh, I can live out my days here and, and uh, <laughs> be buried under a gum tree or a mulga tree. Yeah. Beautiful. How could you not want that? It's stunning here. It's when you drive up to the homestead, the little oasis that appears yeah, super is beautiful. incredible. Yeah. Toby, thank you so much for your time today. It's thank you for your hospitality. And we have so appreciated getting to know you today. Yeah. Thank you. Next up, we were given a lovely welcome to Pindamana Station, where we were met by Don and his wife, along with a few of their family and friends and their team. It was evident straight away from Don how passionate he was about the work he's done to revegetate his land. Don was great. Don is passionate. Don and he, they are so welcoming. This was one thing that was so great about every experience. People were allowing us on their land that they loved and Don and his friends and family were so welcoming with open arms. But Don had great straight away greeted us with these diverse imagery of before all of the work they'd done versus after and you couldn't even believe that it was the same land. Yeah, absolutely. When we first got there, we got to have a look at some sort of maps of the property on the pool table and, again, such hospitality but how passionate Don was you know, they were first generation, he was with his wife, they purchased the land and they were from South Africa, you'll obviously hear in the episode. And I, I remember Don talking about, we asked him why they chose that area and he said they arrived from South Africa and they looked at the land and it just reminded them of home. And so they figured they knew what to do with it. And absolutely they have, and they have put in hours and hours and hours of work to revegetate this land. And you can absolutely see again in the footage that accompanies these podcasts, just the difference that that is making. Yeah, it was pretty epic. And I really, really did enjoy him talking about how he could see the sort of similarities, but also differences with his transition from South Africa. So that was great. I looked around eventually about this in 2006 and uh, we emigrated here in 2008. My youngest son was always keen to farm, so he's farming down in Punjara, who obviously helps Yeah, does the mustering here. Yes, it, it was just a, a big station with a, a lot of opportunity at the time, and we were keen to, you could see the opportunity in the fl- regenerating the floodplain. That was, uh, it was obviously, the, historically, the country that's been hammered the most was because it used to be the best. Mm. And this was no exception. This floodplain down the Warren River is some good country. And that's where we're trying to get it back to what it used to be like. Mm-hmm. 
And you've just been telling us about how long your family's been connected to agriculture, you know, both here and back in South Africa. Maybe you could tell the listeners a bit about just how far back your connection to the land stretches. Yeah, our family got to South Africa in 1697. And I think just about every generation has one way or other been tied up with farming and law or farming and medicine or farming and aviation or whatever. Um, we've always had a one, one, one foot in the paddock. So it's, yeah, we grew up, we were fortunate enough to grow up on farms and uh, it was a good lifestyle for youngsters still is. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to us, when you arrived and you, you purchased the property, when you looked around you, compared to what we're seeing now, like what did you see? What, what was the big issues that were sticking out to you when you got here? There was an, enough good country on the station. You know, it's, it's 240,000 hectares and uh, where I'd come from, 10,000 hectares was a reasonable size block. And, uh, and I could look up and down here and see at least 50 or 60,000 hectares that had a lot of opportunity to farm properly. There's a lot of poor country in between this as well, but uh, one's got to concentrate on the floodplains and the and the Sago Bluebush sort of country that's obviously got decent carrying capacity and will produce you decent animals and make the place sustainable again to run enough cattle for it to be a standalone operation. In terms of when you got here, can you explain a little bit more in detail what it was like? What was this country like compared to anything you'd seen, but also in comparison to where it is now? I was fortunate to have grown up in a similar sort of rainfall area and I could picture country in a drought situation and that's what this country was. In a, it had come through a dry cycle and obviously had the, the previous owners that had, had to destock it. But all up this merchants and area, there was there, there a couple of good stations that have had a long tradition of producing a lot of wool and, and sheep and animals and whether you're producing meat or wool or cattle. I understand the lower rainfall country and uh, you know you, you've got to have a, a decent rest and rotation grazing policy but the more arid the country is the longer your, your your rest period needs to be so if you can get into a rotational system yeah which what we're looking at is only come back to the same block of land every third year it doesn't matter if you have a couple of bad years in between you've got reserve in this country you can't it's just a different approach to high rainfall country where you can, you know, you'll be in and out of it in a, in a matter of weeks or months and yeah. it'll, it'll regrow. Yeah, you've got to build your reserves over a slightly longer time. Yeah. And you've just been showing us around at the contouring that you've been doing. Talk to us about when was the decision made that that was the journey you were going to embark on? Because obviously it's been, I would hesitate to guess, at thousands of hours in the greater. What what was the journey into getting into, um, yeah, the contouring and then eventually the ripping that you've done here? My father and I bought a block of land uh, in, the, in the late 70s. It had a similar piece of floodplain on it that was also absolutely bare and we regenerated with salt with the help of old man Saltbush and contours is just spreading the water because once the water all runs down the creek it's you know it's a case of just utilizing everything that falls onto the land and uh, and and getting the vegetation going again and then it starts compounding so quickly that um, we we now sort of reaching that situation now that the, the regrowth of the vegetation is what's really exciting yeah it, 
and it's quite striking. We've just had the drone up for listeners' benefit and the difference is quite striking. You can really see as we drove towards this area of land that you've been working on just how green and you talked about a lot about the microorganisms that are now back in the soil and you can just absolutely tell. You showed us the map earlier and you've got this quite floodplain area. And So just how far have you been able to move the water? Fortunately, we don't have much of a gradient here. So with a, a little embankment of less than half a metre, you can spread the water a kilometre or two wide. So with the help of a, a grader, you can spread the water and get a lot of work done in a, in one year. It's not rocket science, it's just getting the water out of the creek and spread onto, the, onto the, what used to be, obviously, a beautiful sponge floodplain. What's the average rainfall here for listeners' benefit? It's called it 12 inches, 293 millimetres or something. John, what is it that really keeps you motivated when you're looking at this? Because we spoke earlier and you said this was a project that's been going for a long time and a lot longer than what you thought. What keeps you motivated and what excites you about the future of this project and the potential it has for this country? Uh, every year, it's just, you know, look forward and we just hope that we've had a couple of good seasons, so we've had a, a good start, well, period now. And, uh, yeah, it's just a case that down the line, one would like to make this land sustainable so that, uh, you know, the, our next generations, my children and grandchildren might enjoy it as much as I have. Mm-hmm. What's your ethos around sustainability on the farm? Obviously, you're quite forward-thinking and you're innovative in that space. Is there any projects that's taken over in the back of your brain that you want to take on in addition to this? There's so much good land down south. It's a case of I need to do more underground waters. We've got about 20 bores with solar pumps and stuff on. I probably need to put up another dozen or so and then we'll have all the good country on the station covered. Uh, you know, the next step here yeah, is probably going to be um, not not worrying about fencing, but um, virtual fencing. That's what I'm trying to think. Far away. <laughs> yeah, virtual fe- virtual fencing is, is the way to go, yeah. Because I've done hundreds of kilometres of fencing here already and we, we, we can still do another many hundred, but virtual fencing would make the management and control of animals a lot more efficient because the big thing in the marginal country like this is you need a rotational grazing project program and uh, without that your animals just keep on picking away at the at the most palatable plants first until they've eaten them out and what we're starting to see as a lot of your blue bushes and the quality perennials are starting to come back into this floodplain, which is, I didn't believe that those seeds even existed yet. And uh, they clearly have been able to weather many, many years of being lying dormant. You mentioned to us earlier, you've just touched on it then, that you were a bit sceptical at just what might still exist in the soil after it had been pretty much decimated over those years of overgrazing and you when you were ripping you were telling us you put seed out at that time what what sort of mix did you put out then and is that something you've continued to do or now that you're seeing sort of the natural biome come back are you still continuing to seed or no last year and the year before we've had enough natural plants the perennials seeding here i originally put out old man salt push and the river salt push because i didn't believe there was any seed left here but 
out of the creeks and under the bush that is there and the, the plants that have survived that are the perennials and the plants you will expect to find when this one day eventually becomes climax country again that uh, it's not necessary to worry about putting out any seed now it's, it's just a case of lo- loosening the capsoil and uh, getting the water in we've got enough natural seed around now to, to sort it out in it it's a family business. Who's in the business every day? Who's on the station and working on it with you? Well, we when we first came here, we lived here permanently, and then we've had a couple of caretakers. And uh, the one old chap, Alan Blood, was a great head, uh, help to us because um, he managed the station in the late 1950s. And so the history of the station was of great interest to me. And now we've got a young couple here. You know, I've got grandchildren, maybe some of my grandsons. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. See We've got a couple of little farms that are closer to the city, which is attractive to them at this stage, but, you know, they might see the light one day. <laughs> Don, we spoke about, as we drove out here, the fact that this is something that you want to see a lot of other people implement on their stations. Can you sort of talk to us about this process a little bit, not in too much detail? How easy would it be for someone as a station owner or a landholder to really implement what you've done here on your property and theirs? I think the biggest way would to rather, you know, I didn't have an option, I couldn't afford to do it. But if we, with the carbon farming and the, the, the money that's being generated out of that, your best and most efficient way would be to get a contract in. We have got local contractors here now. That's one of, been one of the spin-offs of people regenerating and doing earthworks in the area is that there's opportunity for those sort of people. And I wouldn't have rebuilt old caterpillars again if I had the opportunity and knew that I had a, a sustainable income there were times that this station has had to be a hobby. I couldn't live off it. And uh, now I can put a lot of the, the carbon money back into the land and uh, and, and use contractors. Mm. It's been an ongoing conversation that we've been having throughout this series is about what that sort of carbon money, as people refer to it as, has allowed people to do. It's it's quite an exciting space, I think. And I'm, I'm excited to hear you talk, thinking about how it regenerates the regions and not just, you know, the soil. What are some of the things that the carbon sort of projects you've been doing have allowed you to do on the farm? Well, a lot of fencing. I've you know, drilling projects. We've put up a lot of uh, solar pumps, spreading the water around. Employ pe- people permanently because it's it's now got a sustainable sort of income. All the, these stations need a, a, lo- a lot of money put into them because they've sort of since the the crash of the wool market in the 1987, um, there hasn't been money to employ people to rebuild fences to rebuild the road infrastructure, the fence lines. You know, this station used to employ 15 men way back, and for the last 20 years, it's hardly had any permanent people. And uh, the way the meat market's going, yeah, you could generate a lot of money running a lot of gates here again and sound, but I think for the next 25 years or the next 20 years or so, a carbon project will be a win-win for everyone as far as making the stationary sustainable as far as beef production. And you can aff- afford to keep a few people permanently employed, yeah. which is, hasn't been the case for a long time. I want to ask you now, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the great work you've been doing and, you know, 
the positives, I suppose. I want to ask you what you think the big prohibitives are in, you know, people really in the rangelands really investing in projects like this and, and moving forward and innovating. That's a difficult one to, to answer. You know, I, I was just fortunate to have grown up in, in this sort of environment and uh, we, we only looked at land as far as improving it, making it more productive. And uh, people with the help of, there are a lot of young people coming into agriculture now on the scientific side, you know, doing soil sciences and those sort of degrees that in my era, you, you either did farming and that was it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And uh, so there are a lot of young, young people coming in and, and there's a lot more enthusiasm around than there probably was 20 years ago. And that's largely people are becoming aware that we need to... Uh, try and get this country back to where it was 150 years ago. Yeah. So I guess just to summarise what you've just said, for you it's it's a lot about how much energy and enthusiasm producers can have in, in the business, you know, and, and really finding meaning in the projects themselves and, and wanting to innovate from within and not necessarily being a profit-led initiative on the farm. This farm has never been a profit-making machine for me. It's, it's, it's been a hobby and I've been fortunate to be able to treat it that way. And it's, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends and people that enjoy coming out here to enjoy the flowers who do have a good season and that can see the difference and appreciate that uh, the farmers generally are trying to do the best for the land. Mm. And we get a lot of negative publicity around the from all different directions, but they, you know, they don't understand. <laughs> well, that just about summarises it up, Don. I think we've done because I normally ask, "What do you see for the future of ag?" But I think you've pretty much summarised it already. Yeah. So, thank you so much for your time. We've really appreciated you having a chat with us. Thank you. It's good to have you here, and uh, yes, we look we look forward to bringing you back in a couple of years' time and show yes. you a bit more. Yes, we'll be here, and the flies. Yeah, yes, we love the flies. <laughs> Our third episode part is Jorgen who is on Yarragabi Station, is so passionate about his land. He has spent most of his life, he has travelled away from his station, but most of his life on this station, having used loaders to revitalise the land has been great for him and they've been able to trap water and completely change the landscape to actually create these beautiful sort of swamps and ponds and it was pretty green. It was so beautiful when they were there and 20 years ago, none of that existed. What an absolute treat and I think the thing that struck me about him was how knowledgeable he was. Like he really invested time into learning and bringing that back to the Southern Rangelands and his property and he really just was trying to learn as much as he could and implement it. And again, doing things that maybe weren't necessarily high cost input, but were absolutely making the world of difference to his station. And I have to ask you, Vinny, do you remember how much he talked about growing up on the station and how it's changed over the years? Yeah. And you can just tell a lot of life has been lived there, can't you? Like it's just every station has such a story to tell and to be a fly on the wall and see what's happened over the years is just, it's pretty phenomenal to be a part of that. Yeah, we're very, very lucky to go and visit all of our pastoralists, but um, definitely enjoyed this one for sure. Jorgen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us today. We generally start in the same place and that is for you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be here. I grew up here, probably spent the last 
15 years here. I was away for a few years before that and I was here for 10 years before that. So on and off since I was about, so the last 25 years. Uh, yeah, so it obviously had been a sheep station for a long time. Got out of those in 2016 and we're just plugging away with the next avenue here, yeah. And over your lifetime, you've not spent that entire journey on the farm, you sort of, or station, so you've been on and off over that time. Do you want to talk a bit about your journey personally? Uh, I spent a bit of time, I went to Africa in 2000, and early 2000s, uh, and I looked at some semi-arid type farming over there. Went through the whole southern half or southern portion of Africa. It was quite interesting just seeing how they manage similar landscapes. I mean, that was really with an angle looking at it for uh, semi-arid management, grazing predominantly for sheep, sheep, goats, meat, sheep as well. But yeah, yeah, I was over east for a little while and, um, and yeah, came home. Was it always in the plan to be full-time on the station long-term, do you think? It was, but there was, when I first came home, there was always, there wasn't a lot of money around. I mean, there's still not a lot of money around, actually. So the, there was always, you, you were always probably going to have to work off station a little bit. Um, and that probably got more and more evident as it went through. I mean, the prices were nothing like, even comparatively, nothing like they are now. It, it was just part, part of the course, you know. Um, and wool had been down for a long time at that period of time. I mean, the Women's Wool Crash 1990, and I came home in 96. So I'd been down for a while. I was down for a long time after that. So there was an expectation, well, okay, you still got to run the place. We've still got these sheep. So we're going to you know, just keep doing it. And, and it was basically a waiting game. Talk to us a little bit about what the last couple of years has been, because there's obviously been a change since everything's been happening with what you've been doing in destocking. Tell us what's been going on over the last couple of years. We got out of sheep in 2016. Uh, we were losing way too many, probably about somewhere between seven, 800 a year yeah. from predation. That was on top of natural losses. Yeah. So we got down to like 2,200 and we, we just thought, well, we know what's going to happen next year, so we'll just sell these while we can. Yeah. The aim has always been to go back into small stock. Um, we've obviously we've got cattle here at the moment, not very many, but we've got some. We've had more. We just so we were trading for a bit. Yeah. But last year we had a season. Prior to that, we, it was fairly dry for that four-year period. Yeah. Uh, we had three failed summers in a row, uh, and and winter rain here has been very hit and miss really for the last twenty years. Yeah. So. Not this last January, just gone 18 months ago, that last summer, that January was probably the worst I'd ever seen it, which is saying a lot because 2000 to 2010 was obviously that dry that pretty much most of the southern half of Australia had. And um, I didn't think think we'd see that again in my lifetime. Like I thought, well, that was it. That was our our big drought. But um, yeah, it got worse than that. We were seeing big mulga trees die 18 months ago, which I'd never seen that before. I'd seen it elsewhere, but not here. And then um, we obviously got a season last year. There's appears like we're getting a season this year. Yeah. We've had a start anyway. So yeah, that, as far as the with the place goes, we've um, we've gone into cattle. We're trying to upgrade a lot of infrastructure. We're doing it for both sheep and cattle in case we ever go back to small stock. Uh, look, just while we're doing it. Yeah. Um, but we're, you know, obviously new infrastructure maintenance requests maintenance requirements will be a lot less. Yeah. We've probably done about 75, 80 k's of fencing, and I've got you know twice that again to do yeah. um, and then it's just be upgrading water points and mm. you know, trying to just make sure everything's a bit more reliable yeah. um, and we'll be managing you know cattle in this instance we'll be try, we're trying to we're going to try and manage it on waters mm-hmm. like we did with sheep and goats yeah yep. what have you been doing to manage predation so far we've got a dogger uh, which is obviously organised by the group we've put into a regional biosecurity group I haven't done any trapping myself for a long time only because the time requirements 
we, or we just didn't have the time to do it properly. So really it's the dogger and baiting. Shooting's not an option, not generally. Mm. You do see the odd one, but very rare. You generally just see the damage they do. You know, we've still got a significant amount of dogs here. I mean, realistically, to clean them up properly, but there's a, there's a um, my next door neighbours are putting in, as you know, a fence. They're putting in a dog fence. They've been funded for that. That's appearing to be quite effective. I don't think it's probably realistic to do it across the whole southern. So if you wanted to go back into them, there is a larger cell, the MRVC cell, which has been completed now. So the aim will be to try and increase the amount of resources available to get rid of dogs inside that large fenced area, but it is a large area, it's five million hectares. But on top of that, there is, you know, who knows, technology, whatever, there might be something come along where it makes it easier to manage dogs per, pro- you know, property by property. Let's turn our attention now, I suppose, to what you're doing in the in the terms of revegetation and land management. Talk to us about some of the innovation you've been showing us. It's innovation, but it's probably, you, you talked a lot about it being quite a simple solution to an issue you've been having. Yeah, look, it, uh, it's not new. The theory is not new, put it that way. But doing it, how Hugh Pringle and Cole Stanton, when Cole came here, that was probably a real opener for myself and my neighbours. As far as repairing damage, damage that I think prior to that a lot of people assumed was irreparable, maybe maybe it might fix itself. You might do a bit of scrub, put a bit of scrub and it might, you know, it might sort of sort itself out. But the way Cole showed us was, yeah, well, the results we was, we've seen of it since... Um, took a lot less time to see significant results than I'd anticipated. And, that, and again, remember, up until last year, that was, it was very dry. Like, we weren't getting a lot of rain. And, and for this, these erosion control methods to work, you do need rain. You need, water needs to run to make it work. Yeah, well, that's what we've been doing. And look, that, that's applicable for this area. It's flat. We haven't got any large river systems. What would be considered minor erosion, probably in a lot of other parts of the state, is, makes a significant difference here to lack of moisture in the soil. And there's plenty of examples where we've repaired a certain section of country. Um, I've got one up the east end where I, it's on the pipeline, we repaired it. I didn't get time to go over to a, like a windmill track of ours that I knew needed repair, we just ran out of time. Now that ran water, it spread out exactly where it should have, but it stops, the grass stops at that road, like to the point where there's, it's, as, it's probably six or eight inches high one side of the road. And this is not, this is not a deep gouged track, it's just enough to steal the water off the other side. And, and that's, you know, there's several hundred acres there that aren't getting any water. And it's, that's relatively simple to fix, just a matter of getting back there. We've, you know, we're trying to prioritise it bit by bit and do the worst, worst stuff worst, and, well, first, sorry, and then move on from there. But that's in amongst, you know, contracting work and whatever else we're doing. So it's sort of... And, and again, my neighbours are probably a bit advanced on me as far as how they're doing it with graders and uh, fence lines and, and whatnot. It's just one of those things you've got to, you've got to start doing it and then just keep learning and try and try and get it right. You're not going to get it right every time and I think that's going to be the case forever but you just got to accept that and at least the water's got to be stopped from running down. They're not creeks, they're, they're really not really supposed to be there. With the rehydration, what does this mean for your station? What are you going to be able to accomplish or what is the forward thinking foreseeable future with the hydration? The biggest advantage out of it, and again the results we're seeing, I didn't anticipate to see them that quickly. Yeah. That's obviously a good thing. The results we're seeing are, um, I mean, obviously there's an increase in vegetation, fodder, which has to be managed anyway. Um, But really, I think, one thing I'll just say is there's always a lot of talk when you're in the middle of a drought, what do we do here? 
And I think really, I mean, we're still going to get droughts, obviously. Yeah. We're, we're in that part of the country. Yeah. I think it's making sure you've got each country type set up in such a way that it gets full advantage of whatever rain does fall on it. Yeah. And then you can manage from there. Mm-hmm. Because if it's all running down into one place, then it's, there's a significant amount of country missing out. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when you do get a drought, you haven't got anything in reserve. Yeah. You know, there's just nothing there to play with. So you've got to react pretty quickly. Mm. And the more of that you've got, I mean, as I say, it's still not going to rain, mm. but you, you'll give yourself time. Your stock should be stronger and you, you give yourself time to get them off or, or at least put them to another part of the place. You talked about sort of fitting this work in, in and around, you know, other stuff you've got going on. How long do you think this sort of rehydration journey is going to be here? Uh, look, it's a time thing. I suppose if I had myself and one other person with two machines, in, you know, you went full-time, you'd probably get most of it done in a year, but it's going to take me longer than that. I'd hope to get this, the worst of it out of the way within the next three to five. Yeah. I mean, the quicker you put them in, the quicker they start to work. And on top of that, we, we're replacing a lot of our boundary fences at the moment. Um, we're making sure we put in diversion banks in those cut lines um, before we put a new fence in. We're trying to get all that work done in anticipation of it starting to erode for whatever reason in 10 or 20 years' time. Um, which it, that's a lot more time consuming and a lot more, um, yeah, but it's just, I think it's important to do it. Do you think this sort of proactive mindset is something that other pastoralists in the rangelands sort of share? I mean, you talked about waiting for drought to make things, make changes, but generally speaking, where do you think station owners, pastoralists are at? Look, um, yeah, I think, as general, I think they are. Uh, and if, if anyone has stayed on their place for the last 20 years, then they're doing something right. I mean, or they're at least committed to it. You know, some people could be a bit more open-minded with some of the changes and accepting that they work and maybe putting that investment in. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to do it yourself. No one's going to buy the diesel for you. You have to put that investment in, hoping it's going to pay off in the future. I obviously believe it will. And, yeah, it's just maybe stop doing some of the earth-moving things that people did years ago with graders um, to make the problem worse. Mm. Trying to just have it so water can go where it's supposed to go and... But no, look, as a general rule, I think, you know, people with their, um, and some new people in the game are probably a bit more accepting of some of the other ways of doing things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but again, everyone's in a different circumstance, you know, wasn't that long ago, we didn't have a lot of gear here, you can't do it with a shovel. So you, you, need to be able to, you need to be able to put yourself in a situation where you can afford that gear and you can actually go ahead and do it. Yeah. You, know? you talk about the fact that you have new people in the game, but you've been here a very long time. You're actually one of the pastoralists probably that we've spoken to that's really spent over, you know, two decades on their farm or station, sorry. What keeps you motivated? Why, what keeps you wanting to keep trying new things? I mean, you've had a long period of like massive hardship. Yeah, look, it's certainly been difficult at times, but I think other people have had it, you know, there's other people in other industries probably had it worse. Um, I like the idea of semi-arid grazing, what I like to call semi-arid grazing. I like the idea of it's, a, it's an incredibly fragile environment and I like the idea of grazing animals on it without damaging it. I hopefully trying to improve it with animals, actually, which, again, I believe is more than possible. Yeah. And, look, that's been proven overseas and different people, that's, none of that's new. Yeah. I, I think the Southern Rainsands in particular were probably misrepresented by government for a long time as far as we weren't getting the rainfall of the production that the Pilbara and the Cumulus were getting, so we were sort of dis- discounted. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that's changing now uh, because you still need some level of government investment for other things. Yeah. Look, I've just got that interest in it as far as, you know, it was always sheep before. I quite like cattle as well. It's just the whole 
trying to run animals on that thing. It's, it's a bit challenging and, yeah. and you've got to look after what you've got. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's probably fair to say some people don't, they're in it for the short term and good luck to them, but it's probably it's not how we look at it. Yeah. Well, speaking of the long game, what's in it? What does it look like? Uh, look, we're just trying to get to a point where we can maintain some level of ground cover. We've got very few stock here at the moment. We need to get our numbers up. Really, it's just I'd like to be able to concentrate on what stock you're running instead of, you know, constantly being away or, or, you know, fencing all the time or whatever it might be. It'd be good to get to a point where, okay, this is what we're doing now. We're running, we're running this type of stock and we're trying to do the best out of that as we can. Because this area's missed out on a lot of advancement in that, mainly because there was just no... A lot of people couldn't see a future, and for obvious reasons. We had predation issues, we had drought. Um, there wasn't a lot of money around, so there was, you know, people were a bit um, down and out about it. So there was no advancement. Even when we had sheep, we, were ch- we weren't really advancing our flock. We were just chasing our tail a lot. We were just trying to maintain that amount, you know. There's only so many days in a year. And you also mentioned that you have a young son, which is exciting. When you're obviously doing all this hard work, in the back of your mind, are you hoping that one day, you know, he's going to take that interest and want to be here? Yeah, look, uh, it'd be good if he did, but it's, it was the same as what I was raised. I think my old man was pretty happy when I came home, but uh, there was no untoward pressure yeah. for me uh, because, you know, I think there's been examples where people, there is that undue pressure and if, if it's not what you want to do, yeah. uh, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. As far as my son goes, yeah, he, look, he may want, may want to, but <laughs> he might find something else he wants to do too, yeah. you know. But again, it'd be good to get to a point where you're running, you're running stock and you're looking after it and there's a whole series of reasons why we do and don't do things. So it's a matter of rebuilding it to get to that point. Yeah. 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 Jorgen, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for having us out today. The light is just coming down. It's the most beautiful time of day and we really appreciate you showing us around and for being such a willing participant on the podcast. No worries. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.